Today we're beginning a new series based on the life of the prophet Elijah. And in the coming weeks, we'll be seeking to learn from his life important lessons that we can apply to our own lives, particularly lessons that relate to learning to rely more fully on God. Now, Elijah lived during a time when things were really bad. I mean, it seemed like everything in the world had just fallen apart at the seams. Elijah lived during the period of the divided kingdoms. You'll remember that after King Solomon died, the northern tribes revolted against King Rehoboam, who was Solomon's son. And then the northern tribes split from the southern tribes, and it became a divided kingdom. The northern kingdom of Israel was formed, and the southern kingdom of Judah. And King Jeroboam was the first king to rule in Israel. Now the Bible tells us that all of the kings of Israel did what was evil in the sight of the Lord. They were not faithful to God. They worshipped all the foreign gods of the nations around them, and they even built temples of worship for these gods. And over the course of about 60 years, seven kings ruled over the nation of Israel. And then, in the year 874 B.C., King Ahab came to power as the eighth king to rule over Israel. And listen to what the Bible has to say about him in 1 Kings Chapter 16, beginning in verse 29. Ahab, son of Omri, became king of Israel. And he reigned in Samaria over Israel 22 years. Ahab, son of Omri, did more evil in the eyes of the Lord than any of those before him. He not only considered it trivial to commit the sins of Jeroboam, son of Nebat, but he also married Jezebel, daughter of Ethbaal, king of the Sidonians, and began to serve Baal and worship him. He set up an altar for Baal in the temple of Baal that he built in Samaria. Ahab also made an Asherah pole and did more to provoke the Lord, the God of Israel, to anger than did all the kings of Israel before him. Ahab married a foreign wife who brought the worship of Baal with her. Her father had been a priest of Baal worship in Sidon, who later became the king of Sidon. And so to please her, to please his wife Jezebel, Ahab instituted Baal worship in Israel. And he led the, his entire nation into sin against God. If things had been bad before... They were getting worse now. Well, when the world is spinning out of control, where is it that we turn? Well, back in the time of the Bible, God raised up prophets who spoke his word to both the leaders of the nation and to all of the people in the nation. And Elijah 
was the prophet that God chose to speak for him in that time and in that place. 1 Kings 17.1 Now Elijah the Tishbite from Tishbe in Gilead said to Ahab, As the Lord the God of Israel lives whom I serve, there will be neither dew nor rain in the next few years except at my word. Now Elijah is considered to be one of the greatest prophets who ever lived in Israel. Over the course of these next few weeks, we'll hear some incredible stories about him. He called down fire from heaven. He didn't die a natural death, but was taken up to heaven in a chariot of fire. It is believed by the Jewish people that Elijah will return to earth once again before the end of the age. Some thought that John the Baptist was Elijah. Others thought that Jesus was calling for Elijah as he hung on the cross. And it was Elijah, the great prophet, who appeared with Moses, the great lawgiver, with Jesus up on the mountain where Jesus was transfigured before a few of the disciples. And yet, in his New Testament epistle, which bears his name, the writer James says that Elijah was a man just like us. Just like us. Isn't that so often the way it is? We build up the people in the Bible to the point that we think they're superhuman or something or that they're some kind of super saint. But the reality is that God calls men and women just like us, frail and flawed, just like us throughout the Bible. Our common humanity, which we share with Elijah, might make it hard for us to believe when we hear some of these dramatic events in his story. But the mighty acts of God in his life weren't due to Elijah's goodness and power. They can only be credited to God's goodness and power, to God's greatness and God's might. Because just like us, Elijah suffered from anxiety and despair, from unbelief and weakness and loneliness. We'll hear about that. We'll read about that in the weeks to come. Elijah had to learn to rely on God's continual provision for his life. He had to learn to trust that God would meet each and every one of his needs. And so Elijah clearly and profoundly spoke the word of God to Ahab Elijah spoke for God, and the world changed. Elijah spoke for God, and the weather forecast changed for three years straight. No dew or rain fell. Well, you can imagine that this made King Ahab really mad. Remember, King Ahab and his queen Jezebel, they worshipped Baal. Ahab had built an altar and a temple for Baal in Samaria, thereby provoking the anger of God. Now what's really funny is Baal was the storm god in Canaanite religion. 
It was Baal who was believed to control the rain, to bring with that rain the ability for life on earth through agriculture. But Elijah is standing up to Ahab and he's saying, uh-uh, you got it wrong. It isn't Baal who is the God of rain. It is the God of Israel, the living God, who has dominion and power over the rain and over everything else in all of creation. You see, Elijah kept his focus on God instead of on Ahab. And he faithfully spoke the word of the Lord to the king, no matter how angry it made the king, no matter what it might cost himself. You see, obedience to God's word can cost us, can't it? Especially when it goes against the prevailing winds of culture. For you see, when a prophet speaks God's word to the king, there's a really good chance that that king is going to retaliate somehow to the prophet. When we stand up to power in our own time with God's word, there's a really good chance that we'll pay a price for it. But God protected Elijah after delivering this news of the drought by telling Elijah to run for it. <laughs> Isn't that great? God's like, get out of Dodge, Elijah. First Kings 17, beginning in verse 2. Then the word of the Lord came to Elijah. Leave here, turn eastward, and hide in the Kareth Ravine, east of the Jordan. You will drink from the brook, and I have directed the ravens to supply you with food there. So he did what the Lord had told him. He went to the Kareth Ravine, east of the Jordan, and he stayed there. The ravens brought him bread and meat in the morning and bread and meat in the evening, and he drank from the brook. Now the Kareth Ravine was far away, way far away from Samaria. God told Elijah to get out of town. And God does that sometimes, doesn't he? Sometimes God's word sends us to hard places, to the wilderness. And sometimes we find ourselves in the wilderness, don't we? The wilderness is never a fun place to be, but it is often where we learn life's greatest lessons. For you see, while he was there in the wilderness, Elijah had to learn to rely on God completely. I mean, the Kareth Ravine was in the boonies. There's no grocery store to shop for food. There's no restaurant to go out to eat. God provided for Elijah. There were no people there. And what a peculiar way God chose to provide for Elijah. God used ravens, unclean birds. Read about that in the book of Leviticus. Ravens are forbidden for people in Israel. But God used ravens to carry bread and meat to Elijah in the morning and again in the evening. Yeah, the wilderness is a difficult place to be. But think about just how often God sent people into the wilderness in the Bible. And, and it wasn't that the people just found themselves there by themselves. It was God who sent them there. Think about the people of Israel God sent them, led by Moses, into the wilderness for 40 years. And they had to learn to rely on God for everything. Elijah, 
as we're learning, fled into the wilderness. He'll flee again in a, in a later week that we'll read about. And even our Lord Jesus spent 40 days in the wilderness following his baptism before beginning his earthly ministry. What we discover is that the wilderness is a place of testing, a place of temptation, but it is also the place that God teaches us, where we learn, where we are transformed. For you see, God is far more interested in our spiritual growth than he ever is in our level of comfort. Remember, with Moses and the people of Israel, they learned how to, to rely on God for their daily provisions, for manna and for quail. They didn't have any choice. There was no food supply out there in the desert, no dependable source of water. And so their very survival depended upon God providing for them. Jesus, in his own wilderness experience, learned what temptation feels like and how to keep God first and foremost in his life. Elijah, too, had to learn to completely depend upon God. And the truth is, most of us as followers of Jesus are going to find ourselves in the wilderness from time to time in our lives. And while we are there, we may find that we are tested and tried and tempted. But more often, what we learn is to rely completely on God. You see, the wilderness is a terrible and frightening place. But it can also be a place of great beauty because there are things that we can only learn in the wilderness. There are things that can't be learned any other place in any other way. It is in the wilderness that we become aware of danger and death and where we learn dependence upon God. I know that in my own life, the times that I have spent in the wilderness have taught me more by far than all the times of my life put together where I've been comfortable. It is in the wilderness that Elijah learned to have a radical trust in God. But before too long, we find that Elijah is on the move again. 1 Kings 17, beginning in verse 7 Sometime later, the brook dried up. Remember, there's a drought because there was no rain in the land. And then the word of the Lord came to him, go at once to Zarephath in the region of Sidon and stay there. I have directed a widow there to supply you with food. And so we went to Zarephath. And when he came to the town gate, a widow was there gathering sticks. He called to her and asked, would you bring me a little water in a jar? so that I may have a drink. As she was going to get it, he called, and bring me, please, a piece of bread. As surely as the Lord your God lives, she replied, I don't have any bread, only a handful of flour in a jar and a little olive oil in a jug. I am gathering a few sticks to take home and make a meal for myself and my son that we may eat it and die. Elijah said to her, don't be afraid, go home and do as you have said. But first, make a small loaf of bread for me from what you have and bring it to me, and then make something for yourself and your son. For this is what the Lord, the God of Israel, says, 
The jar of flour will not be used up, and the jug of oil will not run dry until the Lord sends rain on the land. She went away and did as Elijah had told her. So there was food every day for Elijah and for the woman and her family, for the jar of flour was not used up, and the jug of oil did not run dry, in keeping with the word of the Lord spoken by Elijah. You see, God told Elijah to leave the Kareth Ravine, which was east of the Jordan, and travel far away again, this time to the west, to Zarephath, which was on the Mediterranean Sea, near Sidon, the same pagan homeland from which Jezebel came. And not only did God send Elijah to a pagan town, he sent him to a pagan woman and a widow at that. Now you have to know that in Bible times, widows were some of the poorest people there were. There weren't any safety nets back then. There was no retirement income, no 401k, no social security to take care of you. If a woman's husband died, she became completely dependent on whatever male relatives she might have had to provide for her, to take her in. And if she didn't have any relatives, she became completely dependent upon charity from, from well-wishers in the town. So God told Elijah that he was going to take care of him during the next phase of the drought through a widow. And not only a widow, a widow who didn't even believe in God. How strange is that? It would be like if you lost your job and all your savings dried up and God said to you, go to downtown Cincinnati to that underpass by Gilbert Avenue, by I-71, and there will be a homeless person who will take care of you. And not just a homeless person, a homeless person who doesn't even believe that I exist. That's probably about what this sounded like to Elijah. You might even recall that when Jesus was preaching in the synagogue in his hometown of Nazareth, he mentioned that during the time of Elijah that there had been widows in Israel who could have taken care of Elijah, but instead God sent Elijah to a widow in Zarephath. Oh, that ticked the people in Nazareth off so much. They ran Jesus right out of the synagogue up to a cliff. They almost killed him by pushing him off the cliff. But you see, in this story, God has a plan, and it's to work through Elijah and Elijah trusted God's word, and so he up and went to Zarephath. And when he arrived, he saw a widow alone gathering sticks for a fire. And so he tests her by asking her for a drink of water. Now remember, water was scarce by this time. They were in the middle of a drought. But even water was far more plentiful for this widow than was food. And so she goes off to fetch Elijah a drink of water. And as she's walking away, Elijah calls out to her and says, oh, by the way, would you bring me a little loaf of bread too? Can't you just imagine her walking away and she kind of stops in her tracks and she spins and she looks at Elijah and says, are you kidding me? I have barely enough for myself and you're asking me for bread? I have just a little flour and just a little olive oil make, enough for one final meal for me and for my son. We're going to eat that and then we're just going to wait until we die. I don't have any hope of getting anything more. I mean, this widow is scared. She's at the end 
the future is really bleak for her. Elijah is asking her for more than she can give. But he challenges her nonetheless. And so this widow has a choice, doesn't she? She can either trust in what she can see, this little bit of oil and flour that can feed her boy and her one more time, or she can trust in what she cannot see and give her last morsel of bread away and trust in the promise of a God who isn't even her God that he will provide. Remember that she says, as surely as the Lord your God lives. This is not her God. Her God is Baal. This is Elijah's God. As I was doing my own devotions, reading the Bible reading plan this week, I stopped and asked myself, or I posed myself the question to challenge me, what would you do, Mark Putman, in this situation? And I'm pretty sure what my response would have been, I think I probably would have trusted in what I could see. I think I probably would have taken care of my own family looking at me with hungry faces. I mean, why on earth feed a stranger, a foreign stranger at that, when my own family is on the precipice of starvation? Yeah, this widow has nothing to offer. She believes she has just enough to make one final meal for her and her son, and then they're just going to wait it out until they die. And remember, what this must have been like for Elijah. Elijah had been called by God to go to a person who lived on the far margins of society, to a place where Elijah was an outsider, a foreigner, and to ask for help. Elijah had to rely on someone who would probably make most of us pretty uncomfortable, probably like that homeless person under the underpass if God called us to go. But Elijah was able to challenge this widow in spite of her fear, to give to God first and then watch God supply her needs. He was able to do this because he had already seen God prove himself. He experienced firsthand God's supernatural provision. And so somehow, some way, the Bible doesn't say, this widow summons up her courage and she followed Elijah's request. She obeyed and God provided. You see, the unleashing of God's abundant provision didn't come by her hoarding what little bit she had tightly in her hand, but by opening her hands and giving it to Elijah and thus to God. And in so doing, God provided in an abundant and in a miraculous way. We need to realize that trusting in God's abundance comes in steps. You see, trusting God can be terrifying, can't it? But God challenges us to take one step at a time. Trusting in God's abundance is learning 
to give in small increments, giving little by little in our trusting until we get to the place where we believe that God wants us to be. You see, the widow of Zarephath arrived at her level of trust in steps. First, she gave some water to Elijah, and then she gave bread to him. And finally, finally, she gave her heart. You see, that's always God's ultimate goal, isn't it? To receive our heart, our love, our trust of him. And so here's the rest of the story. In 1 Kings 17, beginning in verse 17, some time later, the son of the woman who owned the house became ill. He grew worse and worse and finally stopped breathing. She said to Elijah, what do you have against me, man of God? Did you come to remind me of my sin and kill my son? Give me your son, Elijah replied. He took him from her arms, carried him to the upper room where he was staying, and laid him on his bed. And then he cried out to the Lord, Lord my God, have you brought tragedy even on this widow I am staying with to cause her son to die? And then he stretched himself out on the boy three times and cried out to the Lord, Lord my God, let this boy's life return to him. The Lord heard Elijah's cry, and the boy's life returned to him, and he lived. Elijah picked up the child and carried him down from the room and into the house. He gave him to his mother and said, look, your son is alive. And then the woman said to Elijah, now I know that you are a man of God, and that the word of the Lord from your mouth is the truth. boy, this widow had really been through a lot, hadn't she? First, her husband died, and she became a widow. And then the drought hit, and she and her son were in danger of starving. And then her son, who was her only hope of a livelihood when he grew up enough to work, became ill and died. Elijah cried out to God and God asked and, and God restored the life to the boy. Life isn't easy, is it? It wasn't easy for this widow. It's sometimes not easy for us either. Sometimes bad things happen. Sometimes things go from bad to worse. In fact, Elijah even felt comfortable enough to question God if God had not brought this calamity on the widow's son. Remember, not very long ago in our series called It's Okay to Be Not Okay, that we learned that it's okay to cry out to God, that God longs to hear any kind of prayer from his children. And as God's children, we can come to God with all of our questions and our concerns. It's okay. God can handle it. God can even teach us through it. Elijah brought his complaint right before God, and God brought this boy back to life. And as a result of that, the widow herself came to faith in God, not the God with a little g, God Baal, that she had worshipped before, but to the one true God, the God of Israel. God had won her heart. This widow's faith had been deepened. She began by giving her water and flour and oil to God, 
and God provided her with an unending, abundant supply. And then she gave her dead son to God, and God raised him back to life. For you see, the chief end of the Christian life is for us to grow deeper and deeper in our trust and dependence upon God. Like Elijah, we are called to go to places that we might not want to go. We're called to go to needy people, to outsiders. And sometimes they're the ones who end up helping us, aren't they? And sometimes we may even get blamed for what we do in God's name. Remember, when the widow's son first died, she blamed Elijah. What have you done to me? But Elijah didn't get angry, did he? Instead, he offered the life-giving grace of God. He didn't blame the widow. He didn't say something like, hey, you would have died weeks ago if I hadn't provided food for you and your son miraculously by God. He didn't do that at all. Instead, Elijah said, give me your son. And he restored him to life. Hebrews 12, 3 reminds us, Consider him who endured such opposition from sinful men so that you will not grow weary and lose heart. You see, Elijah spoke God's word even when it was difficult. He didn't grow weary and lose heart. He spoke the difficult word to the king Ahab, to the widow, even to her dead son. And we need to remember that Jesus, our Lord, is God's word in the flesh and that he has promised to always be with us so we can speak God's word to others. Elijah obeyed God even when it was hard. Jesus, our example, obeyed God even when it cost him his life. And so God used Elijah to confront the wayward and to display God's glory and truth. We have learned today from Elijah that we can trust in God, that we can rely on God's faithfulness as proven to us in the past, and that that faithfulness of God in the past will help us take little steps of faith to a future of deeper trust and reliance on God. And so what step is God asking you to make today? Maybe it's time for you to do something rather than just sit in a pew on Sunday morning. Maybe God is calling you and me and all of us to partner with the marginalized, the lonely, the elderly, the widow, the orphan, the poor. We're sending teens out this week, a hundred people to Mexico and to Appalachia to serve in God's name. Imagine if every one of us took another supply, another box, and, and some tape in the Narthex or the Connection Center today, and, and we brought back a filled-up box next week. Imagine how many people we could feed in our own community this summer. Imagine if the shelves of the pantry never ran out of food this summer because of the one step of faith that you and I chose to take. God is calling every single one of us to speak God's word of truth and to obey even when it might be hard. Trust and rely on God for God's abundance in God's economy is surely more than enough.